Please turn in the Word of God this morning, beloved, to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Reverend Wagner and Mr. Chris Barnes are ministering away. Uh, Reverend Wagner in Pennsylvania in the absence and ill health of Reverend Hamilton and her brother Chris Barnes and the vacant pulpit in Calgary. Do pray for them as they minister. I begin teaching tomorrow. It's a two-week module uh, in a class I've never taught before, so to try and alleviate some of the burden through these weeks of preparation for the seminary, uh, I have uh, chosen just to not get back into Hebrews quite yet. So, in Matthew 6, and I was praying and asking the Lord for what to bring to you, and encouraged by various tokens that this seemed to be the place to be, even as we were praying on Friday morning. In Matthew 6, I'm going to read from verse 19, take up the reading from there, and read through the end of the chapter. Familiar, hear the Lord and the Sermon on the Mount. May these well-known words not like their prophet to us. Now, Matthew six nineteen. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? Why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or, What shall we drink? Or, Wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things did the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth 
that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Amen. This is the very word of God. Receive it, congregation. Receive it by faith. Believe it to be the very word of God. And the people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us now. Grant that unusual divine aid in the ministry of the word that it comes not in word only but in power not with clashing symbols not with thunderous voice but our hearts brought to stillness because God has spoken and we have heard advance thy kingdom now through thine own appointed means. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is for your health. This is for your health. Those were the words of the Apostle Paul when in the shipwreck that's accounted in Acts 27... The soldiers on the boat had not eaten for two weeks, and he encourages them to take meat. He says, this is for your health. The same might be said of the words of the Lord Jesus, where he instructs in the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly what we have here in Matthew 6. The Lord gives to us an understanding of how to weigh our priorities. Upside-down priorities can be devastating. So what the Lord Jesus does is He helps those, if they will receive the help, by telling them, in the plain language of verse 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It is not that all the things of earth have no value. It is not that they are completely unnecessary. In fact, our Lord, in His balance, verse 32, says, Your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. They're necessary. They're necessary. He did not fall into the trap of even some philosophers and thinkers and sages of his own day and before him who looked at all the material things of the world and again had problem with them and saw evil in them all. It's very common back then as well as today at times to fall into that kind of trap. He doesn't fall into that error. There are things we need. He doesn't deny it. There are things that are essential. Our God has ordered the world and part of his ordering of that world makes us dependent on certain things that we might say are material. And so men may be confused about what to prioritize. 
These things are necessary. The sages can say all day long, these things don't matter, they have no value, but your, your reason, your rationale tells you otherwise. You need to eat. You need shelter. You need clothing. You need certain things in life. This is, this is reality, and we deny our reality when we try to tell ourselves otherwise. What our Lord does is He tells us what to prioritize. He gives the assurance that if we get our priorities right, the necessities of the temporal life will be met by God. Of that we can be assured. Now, our Lord, in giving this counsel, it flows out of, the reason why I went back to verse 19, is because though it's all in the context of this entire sermon, it's in verse 19 where he begins to address this particular issue where men tend to prioritize the temporal material things, where they, in the language of the Lord, lay up for themselves treasures on earth. Their aim is to have this huge storehouse of material things, they feel the vulnerability of life, the changeableness of life. Don't, again, we live in different times, and sometimes the era in which we live detaches us, detaches us so much from how most of human history has lived that we don't understand just how changeable things were in terms of bad harvests and what that did to the economy locally. You didn't go to the store and lift bananas that came from South America when you lived in, you know, Europe or whatever. You, you didn't have that. You didn't, these things didn't, weren't common where you, you can pick up fresh produce or relatively fresh produce, and it comes from four, five, six, seven thousand miles away. Never existed until recent times. And so even if there are areas where there's a bad crop, the supermarkets will locate where there's a good crop across the world, and they'll have their contracts, and they'll bring it in. Sometimes it will inflate prices because of demand and so on. You'll see that. Sometimes you go, and what was last year, so a dollar and 15 cents is now like three dollars fifty, and this is because probably somewhere along the line, some big uh, farmer or whatever, that the company that provides this has had a bad harvest, and so it has narrowed what is available and the prices, therefore, as a result of demand, are inflated. But this is not how it has been for most of human history. Things change from year to year. You never knew when there was going to be a bad year, and so you just lay up, and you lay up, and you lay up, and you lay up trying to protect yourself. But when you look at verse 19, remember who God is. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Our thought is when we lay up treasures, is that we're giving ourselves safety and security, and nothing can touch it. If we have enough, we'll be fine. 
Because our thought is that these events that transpire that may diminish what we have are random. The moth, the rusting, these are random events, and we can try to build up our defenses against them. What we forget is that the one who governs the moth, the one who governs the rusting, is God. And our best efforts to shore up and have sufficient supply is not guaranteed. He can bring about circumstances that lay waste to everything we have tried to hoard. He can bring that which will devour. He governs and permits the thieves that break through and steal. These are not random events that diminish what we have. And so, in looking at verse 19, we have to say, even though we might see, see evil that comes in and thieves, those thieves sometimes might come in the name of the government or whatever, or other circumstances that happen and transpire, markets and so on and so forth, that fall apart and you can blame people for it. You can say it's, it's his fault. Blame the chairman of the Federal Reserve or whatever. But we have to have the mentality of Joseph, Genesis 50, 20. Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. He is governor. He is in control. And so, his exhortation is lay up treasures in heaven. Make sure you're putting your investment in something that can't diminish. Where the changes in weather and markets don't have an influence or an effect. Thieves cannot steal. The loss of the temporal in this life is ordered by God. And we don't know what's on tomorrow, do we? We have no idea. Hannah, understanding God's sovereignty over all these things in 1 Samuel 2, 7, says, The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. And so this can happen. We can go through lean times. And the Savior's counsel to us is make sure you're not prioritizing what can be taken from you. You have your needs. I understand those needs. Your Heavenly Father understands all of those particular needs. Don't misprioritize. Make sure you prioritize what cannot be taken from you. Looking at this text, I've titled it Relieved from Secondary Burdens. Relieved from Secondary Burdens. Because while Matthew 6.33 brings a challenge, it does, there's a challenge in making sure our priority is in order, the context of it is actually to give a sense of relief. The Lord is saying, to go back and use the language of Paul again, this is for your health. You're living your life, trying to find balance, wondering how to get your priorities straight and feeling a tension in this world. I want to alleviate some of that tension. 
I want to help you see that if you, if you keep your focus here, then you'll find that you'll have lived your life well. It will not have been in vain. So first, the priorities of the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We think of the priorities here. And prioritizing that which this text says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now, the kingdom of God is a huge subject that can be explored in a, to a degree that you could write something that could be hundreds and hundreds of pages. But in its most basic terms, you're dealing with that which is governed by the Lord Jesus Christ, both in terms of present reality and future reality. And when you look through the Gospels, you will see this come forth. For example, in Matthew 12, 28, if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. There, the Messiah is stating the kingdom of God has come. And you see its arrival. All that has been anticipated, all that has been spoken by the prophets, all the deliverance that would be hoped for through the Messiah, it's happening before your eyes. And it is indicating, it is communicating that this kingdom that you've been looking for is being ushered in by my arrival. It is now a present reality. But it also has a future expectation. It's something that we look for. So, for example, in Mark 14, 25, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So it is a kingdom that is ushered in by the arrival of the Messiah and grows and progresses and flourishes until the final consummation, which he will sit down with all of his people and celebrate what he has accomplished and what they have laid up for them. Now, every kingdom has its citizens and its subjects. And so the message of the kingdom of God is calling men to submit to the king. In its essence, is calling men to recognize the king has come, submit. Don't rebel, don't defy, submit. So at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, this comes into clear focus. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, it's here, repent ye and believe the gospel. Submit, turn from your sin, turn from your attachment to things that are of rebellion against God, turn from your allegiance to that which militates against the king and submit yourself to the king. Christ doesn't come simply to say to you as a suggestion, I offer eternal life. You may take it if you want. Here it is. No harm, no foul. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. The king comes making demands. You boys and girls need to see this. When you're taught, when you're instructed, when you're told, 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. When that instruction comes to you, it is not merely a suggestion, it is a call that you must submit to. The King has come, and He demands that you bow before Him. Alternatively, you can live like an unregenerate Gentile. The previous verse, verse 32, after all these things do the Gentiles seek. The implication is you can live like those who don't submit, those who have yet to bow the knee. Now, the manifestation of the kingdom of God, how it's seen and revealed, is not through material. So, the kingdom of God is not us looking, well, here's a building and this is the kingdom of God. No. No, no. In one sense, you might say, well, it's the product and it services part of what we're trying to do and be as subjects to the king, but it's, it's not in the material things. And, and this is brought out, at least in part, in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And what you see in the people of God, what you see in those who have submitted to Christ is and are these things. It comes out of them. You see them living in the joy of what the gospel has provided. So remember that. Remember that. How is the world to see this kingdom? How are they to understand there's a king to submit to? There is to be flowing out of you righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. That the Spirit has come and He abides with us forever. And he produces then in the citizens of the kingdom something the world does not yet possess, the kind of peace and joy that only Christ can provide and which he commands his people to enjoy and to live in the enjoyment of. So the kingdom of God then is within you. If you have believed, if you've submitted, it's not just that you are now in it, but it's in you. It flows out of you as a true, regenerate child of God. Now, when you read Matthew 6, 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, often it's understood to mean obedience in the believer's life. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Here's, here's an argument for the obedience of the believer, but I have a problem with that understanding of this text. It seems to me to appear synonymous with saying, prioritize the kingdom of God and your own works. And that doesn't sound like the gospel to me. I hope it doesn't sound like the gospel to you either. Prioritize the kingdom of God and your own works. In fact, that seems to militate against the emphasis Paul places in Philippians 3, where he had lived a life where he had prioritized his own righteousness. He had made an art of living in obedience to God, and he realized, he realized his need for Christ and found then in Christ the righteousness that he needed, and then he abandons. He doesn't try to amalgamate the two. He doesn't try to make them join together at the hip. He doesn't try to create a marriage out of his own effort and the righteousness found in Jesus Christ. He says, I count all that dung to win Christ. In my grasp, by faith, I fill my embrace with Christ, and there I have righteousness. And he makes then his, his life, his life's goal is what? Having done that, does he then abandon doing that? Does he 
Well, I, I now have Jesus in my embrace. Now, now then, I, I seek to prioritize my own works. Well, obviously, there's an outworking of the believer's life. I don't deny that, of course. But the emphasis of Philippians 3 in the abandoning of his own righteousness is, and laying claim to Christ and counting everything done is he continues. He continues to lay hold on Christ. Verse 10, what does he say? That I may know him. But Paul, I thought you already knew him. Yes, I met him on the Damascus Road, or rather, he met me, revealed himself to me, called me to himself, took the scales off my eyes, brought me to submit to his rule and reign, brought me into his kingdom. I submitted to the king. I said to him, Lord, what will thou have me to do? It began there, but it continues. My heart's desire still is that I may know him. I want to know him, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is him. It is the righteousness of God that is revealed in Christ. This, of course, is the argument of the apostle in Romans 1, isn't it? Where he's arguing the case for what the gospel is all about. When he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein, Therein, in the gospel, in Christ, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. They seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is walking in faith, living in faith. That seeking of righteousness is not detached from Christ. It's in Christ there is the good news. In Christ, there is the righteousness of God revealed. He's not in Romans 1 referring to that in Jesus you see the inherent righteousness of God. As sometimes I think people read that text. It's like, oh, in Jesus you see the inherent righteousness of God. That's not the point. That's not the emphasis. The righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ is seeing the righteousness you need in the obedience of the Son. And how you appropriate that by faith alone. Resting in Christ. But you don't rest once. You rest every day. And beloved, let me say before I go any further, that's what you need to do this morning. You come to rest in the work of Christ. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, I say to you, is a way for you to unburden yourself from all the other things that claim your attention. It is to seek Christ and just rest there. This is how you can live in a way that will not be taken from you, where you're relieved from the burdens of life. I hope that you have understood this. I hope that you have come to rest in Christ in this way. And that you still are. That you wake up every morning and in your own nature, you're a sinner. 
And what confronts you every morning is the message of the gospel and the hope of salvation. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is I begin my day, I continue my day, I end my day, and as it is for the day, so it is for my life. That righteousness that's found in Christ alone, received by faith alone. Of course, this then delivers us. This prioritization helps us, doesn't it? Because there are things in opposition to living in this way. For example, human approval. In this very chapter, you will see how human approval is something that men seek for instead. Look at verse 2, back to Matthew 6, verse 2. He's warning about how we do the, the good works that we do that are tend to be found among religious, the religious people. Verse 2, Therefore when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. That thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. So you have this, this desire for human approval. It's there. You see it again in verse 5. When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Verse 16, fasting, moreover when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. And so he instructs, like if, you, if you're really wanting to do these things in the right way, don't do it for human approval. That's what they were doing it for. That's really what's militating us. It's like, let's do it for human approval. Well, human approval, you may have it one day and it's gone the next it may evaporate, and all of it's gone. So this comes and militates, and we, we can fall into the same trap. We try to live our lives for the sake of human approval. And be careful, beloved. It's actually something we must actively, regularly fight against, the feeling of needing to be approved of men. Even in handling the Word of God, preaching the Word of God, there's a huge danger that the preacher constructs and considers what he's going to preach and perhaps more often what he's not going to preach based upon human approval. There's also then, of course, temporal necessity. That's what we read from verse 19 through 21. This is another distraction that keeps us from seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, where we seek the temporal and shelve the eternal Again, these are, these, are, these are real things. When you think of human approval and temporal prosperity, go, go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Because in the parable of the sower, this is, in basic terms, the warning why the seed doesn't bear fruit. Human approval and temporal, the temporal things, the prosperity, the temporal things, the desire and aspiration for them. I'll not read the entire parable. I'm, I'm hoping most of you are relatively familiar with it. But Matthew 13, read from verse 19. 
<clears throat> here's, here's the understanding Jesus gives. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. So you have Satan just doing his work, taking away the word. But he that received the seed actually got it. It comes to him and some, makes some impression on him into stony places. The same as he that heareth the word and anon or immediately with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, how does tribulation and persecution arise generally? Through men. Through men. And by seeking human approval, he gets sidetracked, distracted. Seeking human approval becomes a weak point. Because of the word, by and by he is offended. So human approval, he, he takes it, he doesn't realize that part of the consequences in coming and professing or saying, I'm going to believe and live by this. And he imagined, this is the greatest message ever. My sins are forgiven. This is great. And he comes and then people are offended and upset and angry at him. And then the desire for human approval drives him away. No profit. No fruit. Verse 23, he that receives seed into the good ground, or pardon me, verse 22, he he also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. Here's the prosperity. Human approval, temple prosperity. These things are the very things the Lord warns against in Matthew 6 as well. Now Solomon got his priorities right, didn't he, at least as he started. Solomon understood long before Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, he got it. In 2 Chronicles 1, read from verse 7. You may, you may want to follow along. But this, again, is familiar to you. Those of you who are young need to see this because here's a man and he is both tremendously favored while at the same time the favor in itself becomes a form of, of, of burden to him, right? Because his father has lived in a way unlike few live and has accomplished quite extraordinary things. And here comes Solomon to stand into those massive shoes, which, as I say, is a tremendous sign of God's favor and mercy to him, while at the same time being this huge burden. Now, some in their carnal folly and ignorance and lack of wisdom would look at Solomon's position and say, this is great. I mean, king, you get to take over and rule over everything. This is wonderful. And they might think that they can do it and they can, you know, it shouldn't be too hard. But Solomon understands the weight of it. I want to just say, before I say anything more here and read this, children, there's something similar in your position, if you're sitting here in the house of God, because your parents have brought you here, they've brought you into the house of God. Listen, children, they've brought you into the house of God. They've furnished you with all these advantages. They're like David and his desire for Solomon. And he's put them in this position of favor, of wealth, of riches, of blessing, of, of, of abundance. And you can mess it up. The riches you have 
what you have access to. Sitting in the house of God, being exposed to God's word, you have access to great treasure. And you can mess it up. Solomon, at least in his early days, had sense. Verse 7, 2 Chronicles 1. And that night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father, and hast made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established. For thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this thy people that is so great? God said to Solomon, Because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet hast asked long life, but hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and I will give thee riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had that have been before thee, neither shall there any after thee have the like. Here you have one who sought first the kingdom of God, as it were, prioritized what mattered. Make sure you get priorities right. The kingdom of God and His righteousness. That you by faith put yourself as a subject of the king and you keep seeking, you keep seeking that king. It's the first thing it is the ultimate thing, beloved. You must, must say Christ for me. Not once in your life, but every day of your life. And when you're faced with choices, young people, when you're faced with choices, and there are things that you have to evaluate in making those choices, make sure in the making of choices, that it's Christ for me in every decision you make. Christ for me. Not just jobs and big things, but every day. What you do. Christ for me. Not just the priorities then. Let's consider the privileges. The privileges of the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The privilege of this exhortation is that, at least bottom line, <laughs> the Lord Jesus is telling you how to not waste your life. Now, look at verse 32 again. I had never seen this before. I should have seen it. It's in the context. There are other ways in which the Lord says the same thing. He, he, for example, points to the fowls of the air. And he points to the lilies and so on. Shows God's care for them. Verse 32, after all these things do the Gentiles seek. The Gentiles spend, that is the unbelieving, they spend their lives worried about basic necessities. That takes up their lives. 
And in the vast majority of cases, God, in His good pleasure, and in His common grace to man, and His sending of the rain on the just and on the unjust, gives them what they so desperately long for. They spend their lives wanting the necessities of life. And generally, they obtain it. Generally. In other words, here are people throughout the world that have all this anxiety and God gives them what they're anxious for. And the Lord is saying to His people, those who will follow Him, don't waste your energy. Even those who don't submit and obey and love and serve and believe generally have these things taken care of. The goodness of God should lead them to repentance. But even where they don't, generally they have these things met. Now why then, why then would you waste your energy worried about that which most unbelievers receive from God out of the goodness of His common grace to them? Doesn't your father know? Your father the one who has condescended and made himself known to you, who in covenant love has brought you into his family, adopted you as a child of his, made you co-heirs in Christ. You think he's not going to take care of you? Why are you wasting your energy? Again, this is, this, is, this is underlined by the language of verse 25. The language of verse 28. Verse 26 as well. Are ye not much better than they? That is the fowls. But the Gentiles. Let's, let's bring it right into the human race. The Gentiles. I've never seen the, the implication of the Gentiles seeking this and the vast majority of them enjoying the same. Why should we live like they? So, you have this privilege. You have a privilege, first of all, of one master. One master. And this is what the Lord wants for you to grasp. Again, the end of verse 24. You cannot serve God and mammon. He's wanting you to make sure you have one master, which goes back to the very prayer He gave them to pray. Doesn't it? Go back to verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Don't pray for your own kingdom. Don't pray for your own little needs and your own little burdens and anxieties and cares. You can, you can just remove all of that. Just, in, in, in a general sense, not see that as the priority. Now, it's perfectly fine to lift up those necessities in prayer because in doing so, you're recognizing God's sovereign provision and mercy and He 
wants you to do that. So pray, give us this day our daily bread. Give us our necessities. But in the coming of kingdom, pray for my kingdom. Sit under me as master, not yourself. Don't submit yourself to any other. This is liberating. You don't have to live under this burden. Don't try to serve two masters. No man can serve two masters, verse 24. It can't be done. So you have this privilege, a privilege of, of having one master and knowing it and knowing it. One master and also one judge. One judge. Who is judging all things? Who is governing as judge over your life and everything else? The Lord. So again, back to the prayer, verse 12, just as an example of this, where you're able to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Why can you forgive your debtors? Because there's one judge. You don't have to live as judge and jury over the ills of other people and how they live, even in how they wrong you. You don't have to live as judge. That's a real burden. I think some people, for some reason, they keep this burden on themselves. They've been wronged in some way. And they live their lives harboring this ill will towards the wrong, towards them that have done the wrong. And they, and they live like, like a judge, recognizing they've done wrong and so on. And they feel it like... What they do, they come then as a judge over that. And the Lord says, you don't have to live that way. I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Just recognize what you have in Christ. Don't just sit there under one who is a judge who can forgive and deal with all of this. Does that make sense? That you're not living under this sense of being judge and jury towards those who even wronged you. You can, you can escape that burden. These are some of the privileges of the kingdom. One master, one judge. And finally, the publication. There is to be the publication of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Think just for a moment what it is that most people are concerned about. What does the news tell you about every single day? Every day. On the news. Without fail, the economy. Never, ever, there's never a day that some aspect of the economy is in the news. Right? There are days other things are missed. Sometimes we don't always hear all the details of what's happening in some foreign war or whatever. You know, something may happen that comes to light again. You know, we haven't heard anything in the last couple of weeks and that, and maybe something major happened and they tell you about it. But the economy is always in the news, always. That means, and the reason for that, in part is because that's what people are concerned about. All your neighbors are concerned about the economy. They're worried about making ends meet. They have this sense of this, this pressing need to meet the demands of the material life. And Jesus, here in Matthew 6, gives to you the liberating message that you don't have to be first and foremost, concerned about these things. And we do not well when we hold our peace. <laughs> because your neighbors are concerned, and you could go to them and read Matthew 6 and say, do you ever worry about the future, do you? Ever wonder if you'll have enough? 
You ever wonder if you might lose your job and what that might mean in relation to your mortgage and other things? Do you ever think about those things? And I imagine most people you work with will answer in the affirmative. Yes, those things cross my mind. I think about it regularly. And you can open up Matthew 6 and you can tell them, I have medicine for that worry. I do. The medicine for that is to submit to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. It is to see him as the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Submit yourself to his rule and reign and those things that the rest of the world worries about almost every day, you can say, Adio. And in its place have one thing. Being a citizen of this kingdom and seeing its advance. Thy kingdom come. So as you go about your business, you're not just there to make ends meet, you're propagating the kingdom. I want to see his kingdom advance. There's no reign like his reign. He gives righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness. That which I need before a holy God. Standing on the day of judgment, fearing what God might do to me, how I might be assessed, that fear is gone because it gives righteousness. Concerned about all the things in this life and being rattled by every changing circumstance and wondering, can I do it? And feeling yourself to be on your own and then realizing, no, God is our refuge and strength very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear though the earth be removed and the mountains carried into the midst of the sea. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want peace and joy. Joy in the Holy Ghost. Living in a world fallen, affected by the curse, such uncertainty as that brings, and yet joy, unspeakable, full of glory. Oh, beloved, are you relieved of the secondary burdens? Are you? Are you still carrying them around? Still constantly living in the anxiety of these things? Oh, ye of little faith, Jesus says. Little faith. Do you not believe the language of Ephesians 1.3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath, not will, hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Do you see your riches that can never be taken from you? Meeting for prayer with the elders on Friday morning, I turned their attention, with this I close. Joshua 24, 13, let me just read it. Where Joshua, at the end of his life, let just hear what he says. Where God says to his people, I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them. Of the vineyards and oliveyards which ye planted not, 
do ye eat? You have the same. Stop going around imagining that you have to have all these vineyards and so on. You have provision. The gospel makes provision. Yes, materially. Yes, spiritually. You may not be rich. There's no guarantees. And sometimes you'll be stripped of the very things that you have and that you value so much. But still you will know this. As we said this beginning of the year, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because as you live as a citizen of his kingdom, he will. He will put riches there and rewards that cannot be touched nor diminished which you will receive as you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. You know this verse, but are you living in it, child of God? Thy face I seek, O Lord, in thee I put my trust. Lead me through darkest night, but follow thee I must. Come sorrow, joy, or pain. Sufficient is thy grace. Thy way is best for me. O Lord, I seek thy face. God, I pray, help us. Subdue carnal passions. Alleviate carnal fears. Make us, equip us, and empower us to get our priorities in order. Fill our vision with Christ. May the love of Christ constrain us, living as citizens of thy kingdom and benefactors of the cross. Bless us then. Help us to Help us, Lord, just to understand Christ for me. In the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God, now and evermore. Amen.